This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Josh Smith. So Josh is a master bladesmith, and he is the founder, owner, and CEO of Montana Knife Company. And so a lot of you guys are familiar with Montana Knife Company because they have exploded over the last several years, especially this last hunting season. Everybody was talking about the knives that they were putting out there. Joe Rogan's wearing their hat on his show. Really, the brand just exploded overall, and a lot of it started with this knife here. This is the Speed Goat. And guys, you know in this particular podcast... I, I tell you a lot about kind of where I'm at in life. Like, okay, you know, I'm learning how to do the outdoorsy stuff and the camping and, and the hunting and all that in my thirties, right? Because I just didn't grow up doing any, any of those things. And so I'm like finding different brands and, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, great friends in this area. You know, we've got the, you know, Stevenson knives guys and, you know, I've got a sanity blade here that my dad got me and, you know, that's sitting here at my workstation, but talking to a guy like Josh who has been into the knife making game since he was really like a little kid. He had a, like a little league coach tell him about, how to make knives and like he started at a very early age and this isn't a guy that just knew he was destined to make knives in his life it was just something that he liked to do and so in this podcast we talk about that entire story of like from the moment you became interested in making knives to right now when people are literally bending over backwards trying to do everything they can to get their hands on one of your knives like what happens but then also now that this is your business now that you're growing mkc you're growing this entire knife empire you know what are the struggles that you're having what are the things that you're looking to do like what are the limitations that you have particularly on your brand and then at the end of the interview we talk about misconceptions about knives like what people do wrong when they go out and buy knives for particular purposes and things like that but he just gave us a lot of insight into what's happening at montana knife company what they're doing as they move forward into the into the future and one thing when you talk to anybody that's in this knife knife making world, sure, there's a little bit of competition, but these people just love each other. They they want each other to, to you know, use their knives and, and to abuse their knives and give them ideas. And that's one thing that came through in this interview with Josh is like, he wants feedback from the people that use his knives. Like if you're on a hunt and it doesn't work out well for you and there's something that you wish the blade could do that it's not doing right now in its current form, he wants to know that information. But guys, I really, really enjoyed my time with Josh. We're certainly going to have him back on to talk about other things at a later date. But for right now, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So let's get after it. Let's get into it. Josh Smith, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It's an honor to be on here. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on because uh, you and I have talked offline about some of the things that you have going on, and I'd love to kind of bring that to my audience, but we need to start small. We need to start easy. Two-part first question. What was it like growing up in Montana, and how has the show Yellowstone ruined your home state? I feel like those two things have to be talked about at the same time now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's actually well. Growing up in Montana was amazing. Uh, I grew up in Lincoln, Montana, a small town on the edge of the Bob Marshall Wilderness, uh, uh, just just kind of on the edge of uh, of that Bob Marshall where it's just kind of rough and and cool country. From from Lincoln all the way to Canada, there's nothing but basically moose and grizzly bears. So, a uh, really cool place to grow up. Small town. Um, actually home of the Unabomber, which I don't know if that's really a, a great one to have on your business card, but you can uh, put it on there and see how people uh, respond to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, no, it was a really cool place growing up, a real small town fishing and hunting, uh, parents own excavation business, but definitely Yellowstone, uh, has, has definitely been having an impact. It's been, it's been wild. And you know, what's amazing is 
you've never seen a Yellowstone episode with snow. Isn't that funny? Because they always shoot in the in the summer because they don't want to deal with what's going on in the yeah. wintertime. It's like Kevin Costner doesn't want to ride his horse in uh, when it's twenty below in January. So, um, yeah, it's kind of wild. It's uh, it's almost like they make it look like our weather is like Hawaii year round, which would be nice. But right, well, I mean, it's good for tourism and good for stuff like that. But then you know, for the locals, it's like, all right, guys, like we get it. Those boots are really new. Those Wranglers are really new. Uh, but obviously, growing up, being around fishing, being around hunting, it kind of, I guess, led you towards what you're doing now as a business. But my understanding is that you got into knife making at a very, very early age. So as I understand it, 11 years old, that was yeah. when kind of one of your coaches got you into knife making. Is that correct? Yep. My little league baseball coach, he was actually an outfitter, uh, elk, elk hunting outfitter. Um, and he was a little league baseball coach and parents bought me one of his knives for Christmas. And then he invited me up to make one. So, uh, you know, again, real small area, kind of everybody knows everybody and, uh, was really cool that, that he was willing to let me come into a shop as a little kid and, and work with him. So you're, you're working with him as a little kid, but you know, for a lot of little kids, you do something once. Like I remember going to Votech when we were in like seventh grade and you know, some of the class went over here to, you know, work with some PVC pipes. Some of us went over there to work with some welding, but not most of those kids were like, yeah, I really want to come back and do this. But it seemed like there was something in the process of making blades that just, I mean, to not sound too ethereal, but like spoke to you at a very early age. Like what, what do you feel like drew you back to that? Because I mean, you could have made a blade and then moved on with your life, but you kind of made it your life, you know? You know, I haven't really had anybody ask me exactly that. And it's a good question from the standpoint of like, I haven't really thought too deeply about why it is that it stuck with me. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of little boys that are into hunting or think knives are cool. Um, but, uh, I, I almost want to say that that challenge of kind of chasing like, um, somewhat of like perfection, which I was nowhere near perfect then, but like making one, but then trying to want to make the next one better. And then I constantly chase that. Well, I mean, I still do that, but really for the next 20 years, uh, I just like set these sites to try to, to kind of achieve a high level of knife making, but it was a long and really slow and painful process. Like you don't, you don't get better overnight. And actually when I think about it back then, uh, there was no internet. There was no YouTube videos. There was no forged in fire on television. There was so the only way that you could could get better at something was to go to somebody's shop in person and learn. And I think that actually made it a lot slower uh, because if I have a problem today with with anything, I can just Google it and I can watch a video and learn exactly what I'm doing wrong right now. And I would have to struggle sometimes for months before I would go to like my next knife show. Um, you know, he would help me. Rick would definitely help me, but uh, it was definitely a lot slower, more kind of arduous pro process of getting better. But I, I think chasing, um, I don't know, something, I, I honestly don't know. It's a good question. Why it, it like, cause I, trust me, I, I wanted to quit several times. Like I was mm. come home crying to my parents, like, yeah, I thought I made this great knife and I would show, show this knife to, you know, this group of knife makers I respect. And then they would tear it apart and tell me everything that was wrong with it. Rarely ever tell me anything was very good. And I'd come home frustrated. Like I thought I did something really good and all they found were the flaws. And I just kept chasing that. And it really was not until I was probably 22, 23 years old 
that I went, I remember going to the Atlanta blade show and showing a knife to a, a kind of a legend that I'd been asking for t- critiques for over a decade. And he looked at that knife and he ultimately just said, that's a damn nice knife. Mm. And that was like, like I'd kind of started to actually make it, you know? Yeah. It was, was like a, your validation. It was 12 years after I started. Well, so you know. let, that reminds me of something. Uh, recently, I talked to Bert Soren. I think you're you're familiar with him and the stuff he does over with Sorenex. And you know, obviously, he's a big hunter as well. But you know, when he was growing up, uh, you know, because I'm a millennial, and you know, he's kind of on that millennial uh, Gen X uh, line right there. There are a lot of people where they got this idea where okay, you, you've got to keep the kids from thinking that they're doing things wrong, and no matter if they've done it right or, or if it's perfect or whatever, you always have to coddle them along and say, "Oh, this was so good, and let's kind of do this." But from what it sounds like for you, which is similar to how it was for me, it's you had a bunch of people around you that were not focusing on the things you did right, but they were only focusing on the things you did wrong. Which in modern, you know, modern times, that's like, oh my gosh, you're being abusive. But that's what led you to do what you're doing now because it caused you, it forced you to be resilient. It's like, hey, if you're going to do this, you need to actually do it. Like, I can't just keep telling you everything you're doing is awesome because one day you're going to realize it's not and it's probably going to be embarrassing. Does that make sense? I feel like it's, oh, it's yeah. better that the way you went through it. No, they beat my ass down. Um, I mean, I was the little kid amongst a bunch of 30 and 40 year old men and they they nicknamed me Psycho Knife Boy. And uh, they, I would like when we were staying at hotels at knife shows, uh, they would hand me a whole bunch of change and I'd have to go like run and get the pops out of the pop machines. Right. I couldn't obviously go on a beer run, but like, Hey Josh, go get ice, go get water. I was just kind of like errand boy at those shows and kind of like hanging around trying to not be the annoying kid though. I'm sure at times I was. Um, but I, yeah, they, there was, they were, they were good to me. I wouldn't want to, they weren't, you know, obviously they weren't abusive, but they, they were good to me. They took me along. They let me hang with them. Uh, but they did not hand out compliments. And in fact, it was more of like, uh, I, 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 you know, kind of like a hazing almost. I mean, I got a lot of shit. I got given a lot of shit. And uh, at times where I was like pissed off and almost at the point when I was in high school of like, like, you know, I've gotten big enough. There's a couple of you I could probably whip your ass, but like still respectful, still respectful. And finally, like I say, when I got into my 20s, I felt like I started being really treated as a peer, you know. Well, and that, that's a good thing as well, because you're, you're understanding how to comport yourself around people that are in the business that you want to be in. And then you can kind of see like, okay, do I want to model myself after what they're doing? Do I want to be a better version? Do I want to be a similar version? Just kind of, you know, maybe over here, but for you, I mean, even in your teenage years, you were going through uh, learning how to be a journeyman bladesmith, right? And so I think when you were like 15, before you could even legally drive, you were learning to be a, a journeyman bladesmith. You know, before you turned 20, you know, you earned the rating of Master Smith from the American Bladesmith Society, something that most of us don't even know exists. We just think, okay, if you want to make knives, you make knives. But with all these things, even through your teenage years, Josh, you're having to prove yourself. To, to people that are in this business that aren't going to give you the, that stamp. They're not going to give you that rating of master Smith just because they like you or just because, you know, you're really quick on the, you know, the, the Coke runs or something like that. So I guess take me through to someone like me, who's a novice that doesn't know anything about the journeyman bladesmithing world or, you know, getting the rating of master Smith. What is it that you have to do before you get to an event like that? But then what do you have to do once you get there to show, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I've been able to do. Yeah, no, good question. I mean, the, kind of the overall thing is you have to you have to become a um, a member of the American Bladesmith Society, and that that basically makes you an apprentice uh, just by kind of paying your dues. Uh, but you have to be a member for three years before you're eligible to test for your journeyman rating. 
uh, for your journeyman rating, uh, that basically shows that that you can make a high quality knife. It's not perfect, but you're you're kind of moving towards being a professional. Uh, you're taking it more serious than your average hobby guy. And to get that rating, you have to do a performance part first. So you have to chop a one inch board and or a one inch rope in half and one chop. Then you have to chop a two by four in half and as many chops as you want. That blade then still has to be able to shave after it's done doing that. And then you have to blade, bend that blade 90 degrees in a vise without breaking it. Uh, what that shows is that you have the ability to make a high quality functional knife. Uh, a knife is supposed to be a tool, right? So uh, before that, it matters if they look pretty, the knife actually still has to function as a tool. Uh, that shows that you have the ability of controlling metallurgy, heat treat, uh, edge geometry on your grinds, how to sharpen a blade, things like that. Uh, you have to do that in a master smith shop under his direction. Uh, he has to witness it and administer the test. And then you go to the Atlanta Blade Show and you present your five knives to a panel of judges and they judge fit and finish. And they decide if you're making high enough quality knives in, in the way of appearance and style. Uh, once you pass that, uh, then you have, you have to be a, a journeyman at least two years before you test for master. Uh, I wasn't ready in two years with high school and sports and working for my folks. So I actually didn't test until I was 19. I waited four years. Um, and the same kind of test applies, but this time you have to do it with a Damascus steel blade that you forged. Uh, has to do the rope and the boards and bend 90. But then you also have to go back to that blade show. And at this point, you present five knives, uh, one of which is a quillian dagger. And that quillian dagger is a very difficult knife to make. It's with the symmetry involved, uh, the carving that it has to have, the gold wire on it, things like that. Uh, and they judge you very harshly at that point. There's really no room for uh, for error. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I was able to pass the uh, journeyman at 15 and the mastersmith at 19, like you said, um, became the youngest in the world. At that point, there were about 80 in the world. Now there's about 140. Um and so it's, it's a tough test. What I will say, there's definitely knife makers out there that could probably pass it that just have chosen not to go on that path. Hmm. Um, what I will say, it's a little bit like somebody who's very, very, very fit and clearly an amazing athlete and a good shooter saying, I could pass buds. I could become a Navy SEAL. Like I could go through the buds and pass it. And it's like, that might be true. And you're clearly a very fit person, but you didn't do it. You haven't done it. And, and it's one thing to say you can do something. It's another thing to actually put yourself out on the line and be judged by your peers. And, and I always say that that's something I really respect people even today that do that. Um, a lot of those guys don't maybe necessarily have to business wise. I don't think it necessarily grows, uh, a guy's business today, huge that passes it, but it's an accomplishment of putting yourself on the line, you know, and, uh, and, and being willing to be judged by your peers. Yeah. I mean, you're laying yourself bare. You're literally like, look at all this work I've been doing. And like, look, if, if it doesn't bend to 90 without breaking, like it just kind of is what it is at that point. Right. So I'm curious for you, cause I, I'm sure there are people that have gone through the process you went through that didn't make knife making their career. They didn't build this enormous knife making business. I guess where, where along the pathway for you, was it when you were a teenager? Was it after that where you're like, okay, this isn't just a hobby anymore. Like this is what, this is what I'm called to do. This is what I was put on this planet to do. And let's just see if we can make money at it. Like where, where was that line for you? You know, all those old guys all along were telling me not to go full-time at it. You know, they were telling me, 
go get a good job, benefits, paid vacation, the whole nine yards and do knives as a hobby. Have fun with it. Enjoy it. Cause it's a hard way to make a living. It's a starving artist situation. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this was really before the internet and before social media and marketing yourself was hard. Um, I was in a lot of magazines and stuff. A lot of those magazines were really good to me, uh, but you kind of had to get somewhat lucky to, to get that kind of stuff. Otherwise you had to buy traditional style advertising and it was tough. You had travel to shows. Uh, so I kind of took their advice for the first couple of years out of high school. I'm like, well, I'm going to go get a degree. Um, I kind of duck hunted my way out of college. Uh, my heart wasn't in that. Uh, I, I decided to go back and work in my parents' excavation business. I, I'm, I'm very good at operating equipment, I'm very good at doing all that kind of work. So uh, I thought, well, I'm going to help my folks just take over. I'm going to take over their business. It was a very viable option at the time. But my dad kept telling me, um, go find something that's not so seasonal. You know, the excavation world in Montana, especially in Lincoln, is tough. It's you don't work from the 1st of November until April 1st. So you work like a dog. Uh, we'd work seven days a week, you know, like dogs from April 1st to November 1st, because you had to have enough money to survive the winter. Um, so I got married, I moved into Missoula and, and I, I went to work for an excavation guy here in town. And at this point I was just like, I have to scratch this itch. Like, and of course, like any young man, it's like those old bastards don't know what they're talking about. Like (laughs) they're just doing it wrong. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll be better than them. I'm a better business person. And so I, I did go full time uh, in 2002, uh, got a home loan on our first home. And the day after we closed on it, I quit my job and went full time making knives. And uh, I was full time for about 10 years. Uh, but I definitely found out that it's it's a tough way to make a living making. I was making very high end knives, you know, $1,000 to $5,000 a piece. Hmm. Um, sounds like a lot of money and it is for a knife. Um, but it's like one knife a month, you know, or, or you're working on something and then you screw it up and you lose all that time. And, uh, the economy started crashing in 2010, uh, the, you know, the housing market, that whole thing. And I had a buddy that was working for a local power company and he was like, man, he was telling me about his paid, paid vacation and all his benefits and his time mm-hmm. off. And it's like, that sounds pretty nice. So I actually applied and got a job there, uh, as an operator, a backhoe operator, kind of back to my roots. And, uh, you know, kind of to run you through that kind of long story short is I, in the beginning, it was a relief, like going to work. God, you just showed up to work. There was something on the sheet told you where you had to go. Mm-hmm. You just go do your job. If it doesn't go well or things aren't going well, yeah, you worry about it tomorrow. It's not your problem, right? Or they'll pay you double time to fix it and work overtime. And uh, mm-hmm. it's like, man, this is a relief compared to the stress I've been under. Uh, but I also had this like, I want to say a little sense of failure, but also a sense of like, I still had an ultimate goal of a knife company I wanted to build. And, and I was realizing as a full-time maker, I was never going to get the money built up to afford the time to start Montana Knife Company, which was the production business I always wanted to start. Well, that lineman, I ended up progressing and going away from operating there. And I got a, a an apprenticeship and it became a journeyman lineman at that same utility. Hmm. And that lineman job was good money. And it also provided me, you know, plenty of time after work. Uh, you know, you're home at five o'clock. Hell, there's five or six hours left in the day. Right. And so every night uh, when I got remarried, 
um, I started working on uh, prototyping and thinking about Montana Knife Company and getting back into making knives that I'd kind of taken a little hiatus from. And, uh, and I just had this itch at work every day that it wasn't fulfilling. And then if I didn't chase that dream, I was going to for- regret it forever. You know, I talked about Montana Knife Company with a friend of mine. His name was Nick Salter a hundred times, if not 200 times about this business I wanted to build. And I'd sit in the bucket truck and talk to the lineman I was working with about this outdoor business I wanted to build and this knife company. And we talked about it for years and it was turning into one of those things like you're either going to talk about it forever or you're going to freaking do something. Right. And I'll tell you what the game changer for me was when I got remarried. Um, I'd gone through divorce. My house had burned down. Uh, it's basically a country song. You know, my dog ran away, mm. all that stuff. And uh, uh, when I got remarried, I all of a sudden was married to somebody who, instead of like feeling like I was paddling into the wind, all of a sudden I had wind in my sails, right? And she was she was like, I told her about my idea of this company and she was like, well, you should quit your job and do that. And I was like, well, slow down, <laughs> not, not just yet. And she was like, well, let's do it. And so she's, she's like, I have the house. I got the laundry, I got the kids, I got dinner. You go to your shop and you figure this shit out. And and honestly, she's the one that enabled me to get out of my shop and start to actually build Montana Knife Company. And uh, you know, I launched that in this in in 2020, which was COVID. Uh actually right. at Bert at Bert Soren's place that you talked about, Bert. Yeah. Um, at Winterstrong. I showed some prototypes around. And, uh, that group of people, that group of individuals, uh, was just, they were just like, Hey, we got you. We're behind you. And I came away from there of hanging around like-minded or actually I felt inferior in that crowd. Actually, I was hanging around incredibly accomplished people. And when people like that, whether it's business, sports, military, whatever, when people like that are like, we got your back. We believe in you. You can do this. I came home and I had this attitude of like, we're freak. I'm going, we're freaking going. So, okay. That kicked it off. So you, I I really appreciate all that because you really covered a lot of things that I wanted to get into because it's like, you're right. A lot of people have that idea that they're capable of doing, but they're scared or the timing's not right, or they don't have the funding or, you know, they've got a drag on their life. You know, it's a, it's an actual ball and chain kind of a situation. And so it seemed like a lot of things kind of coalesced together and kind of clinked together in the same time period. But I mean, looking at the calendar, it's the beginning of 2023. You just launched this in 2020, but I swear to goodness, it seems like your brand is everywhere. I mean, we, we see your hat, you know, Joe Rogan's wearing your hat on the show. I'll talk to random people. Like I remember when I got sent and we're going to talk about the speed goat in a second, but I got sent one of these before I knew what it was. I sent a picture of it to a few buddies. I, I like knives and they're like, where did you get a speed goat? How in the world did you get one of those? And I'm like, crap, I don't even know what this thing is. So I, I guess I was going to ask you, was there like a big break moment? But it seems like since 2020, it's just been, y'all have been growing at breakneck speed. I mean, and you've far outpaced your ability to, to make knives and we'll get into the expansion of the facility. But I guess what have the last couple of years plus been like for you? Because it seems like you went from nothing to something really fast. Yeah. And I, I will say by, by talking about my brand for years, I had plenty of time to really formulate in my head uh, what I wanted my brand to look like. Right. Mm-hmm. And what, and how I, I thought I would go for it. And, and, 
I think by allowing, instead of trying to kick that off when I was 21 years old and, and at that age that you th- kind of think you know everything, I think by waiting until I was 39, because I, I actually registered the name Montana Knife Company with the state of Montana when I was 19, mm. uh, but I, I didn't launch it until I was 39. So I thought about it for 20 years on the dot. And, and what I will say about being older is I think when we're older, we're a little bit more willing to admit what we don't know and where we need help. And the one thing that I knew right away was that I needed help to build this brand and I needed it on the marketing side. Like I kind of had the knife side. Uh, I was going to figure out the production side. I didn't know shit about making production knives. Um, but I got lucky for sure at that winter strong event at Bert Sorens. I asked his, uh, his cameraman, Hey, do you know somebody that takes photos like up, up maybe near Montana? I need a, I need a camera guy to take some photos and I want to start this company. He's like, yeah, actually I do. His name is Brandon. He lives uh, up in Kalispell. And I'm like, Oh, it's two hours for me. Like what are the odds right in South Carolina? This guy knows. Well, I hired Brandon to come down take some photos. And he was like, well, I can build you a website. So I hired him to build me a website. And through that process, I started realizing this guy's freaking good. Like he gets my vision He's fast. He's really good, experienced. And I even at that point didn't know just how good. And uh, so I couldn't afford to pay him to do it all the time, full time. So I offered him a partnership and I actually gave up 40% of my company on the spot. And I said, we're going to be 60-40, uh, but I'm doing that because I want you to be all in. And if we're either going to fail and it won't matter or we're going to crush it, And even if I gave up 40% of my company, I'm still going to do well and I'm going to be happy. And, and, uh, by relinquishing that side of it and giving up that ownership and admitting what I didn't know, uh, really was kind of that big break because quite frankly, we didn't have the big break that I think you're referring to. Like we just started to grow. Right. Right. And we started seeding knives out and we started doing things the right way and talking to people and using relationships. And we had an incredibly helpful support crowd. Uh, from that winter strong group and other brands. And um, instead of one big aha moment, it was more like the hits just keep coming. Right. And this brand support us and that person and Joe Rogan's wearing our stuff. And then this happens and, and it just hasn't stopped. And in fact, we just kept pouring gas on the fire. And then all of a sudden, you know, we didn't have any money for Brandon. I didn't take a paycheck, uh, well, actually, I, I finally quit my full-time job January 1st of 2021. Uh, so that was the point where it's like, we're all in, right? Yeah, and, let's burn the ships. Let's do it. And we, Brandon and I didn't take a paycheck for half of that year. Uh, we didn't have a marketing budget all of last all of last year. Even in 2022, we didn't, uh, we really didn't spend any money on marketing. We gave knives away to what we thought were badass people. And... And I feel like if you want a badass brand, you have to collect badass talent and, uh, and, and legit people, not just based off Instagram followers, but like the dude has 500 followers, but he's freaking legit. And, and he has a lot of friends that respect him. And, and next thing you know, that dude's got Joe Rogan following him. Right. And, uh, you know, somebody like that starts to take notice or Cam Haynes or people like that. So, uh, it just, yeah, it just, it absolutely took off like a rocket ship, you know, and we, I think our goal for the first year was to do, um, 
I think we told the insurance company we'd be happy if we did a hundred K in the whole year. And we ended up doing 1.9 million that year. Dude, that is, that is so incredible. And, and your marketing looks great. Like that's one of the things about y'all's brand is like everything you do, all the pictures you put out, like there's one picture that y'all need to turn into like an enormous poster. And it's the one it's of a sheep that you have uh, one of your knives across uh, the horns of the sheep. That's a gorgeous photo. You should put that everywhere. You should tattoo that across your chest. It's amazing. And so like everything you do is on such a high level. I, that's awesome that you, you found a guy that was willing to partner with you because that's the thing that people don't really understand, Josh, is for the people that are employees out there, which is the, most of the people out there, if that's what you're wired for, you have your own set of problems that you have to deal with, but it's a different set of problems when you're signing the front of a check as opposed to the back of a check. Whenever you have people dependent upon you and those people have people dependent upon them, wives, kids, you know, extended family, you know, elderly folks, it becomes a major, major issue. It's not just about building some cool brand so you can be Mr. Cool Guy on Instagram. It's like, no, we're, we're changing lives. We're changing the foundational structure of these people that, that need money to survive. So you, you have this explosion you have all of this, you know, stuff that you're able to send out the door. Basically, every time you have something in stock, it's gone. Dude, I went on your site. I'm on it right now. I was on here like before. I don't know any if I can buy anything, right? Because all the yeah. blades are sold out. I, I mean, I could buy a t-shirt and a hat, but I guess take me through that because like everything's always sold out. You, you have these drops that you do, which is actually really cool because it gets people excited for, oh, I got to make sure I'm buying my computer at 4 p.m. on Thursday so I can buy the, you know, the stone goat or whatever. But take me through kind of the stock? Are you keeping the stock low so people are checking the website all the time? Like, just take me through all that. Yeah. So that's actually, uh, you know, when it goes back to launching the company, again, I had a little bit of money that I, you know, my savings that I could start with. So uh, I started with 200 knives, uh, which to me was a lot of knives at that point. We made those. It takes months to make those. I actually made a lot of mistakes. You know, I, I hand ground every single handle on those. And I started realizing like, that's not scalable. Right. And, and, and so we, we ended up selling those and then we ordered another 200. Right. And then they went pretty fast. And so it was like, all right, well, we got a little bit more money. So we ordered, I want to say 300 or 400 and boy, by the time, like it takes months to kind of get through the process of making that many knives. Right. And we were learning the process a lot. So we were slower and, uh, God, we launched those and they just, at that point now, they just sold like in minutes. It's like, well, and it would be arrogant for me to think like, oh, well, let's go make 10,000, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. you know, at that point I was like, well, all right, let's make another like five or 600, right? And I remember when we got to the point where like, dude, should we order a thousand blades? And, and what's scary about it is you have to put all that money up front in that process the whole way along before you sell one blade, much right. less all of them. Um, but we did it the old school kind of bootstrapping way. And instead of being super greedy um, and trying to get out over our, our, our skis, I, I, was, I refused to put money on a credit card to do it. We just let every knife sale help build the next knife sale. Okay. And, and we did, weren't going to take investment money and, and all that stuff and uh, spin that out over a couple of years. Honest to God, every time we were ordering blades to get cut, you know, from our laser to cut these blades out, um, it, 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 we thought it was like enough knives to actually be in stock on our website. And we would drop those and Kyle, those suckers would sell. It was absolutely crazy. And yeah. the other part of it that was a real struggle for a first year and a half was the fact we were in COVID and the supply chain issues were a problem. Yeah, uh, Getting steel was a problem. 
you know, um, everything shipping it was a problem. So, uh, spin that forward to, to today. We we've, we've upped our drop tempo. We have more knives going. We've hired last Christmas, uh, you know, a year ago at Christmas, our Christmas party consisted of my wife and Brandon and I, and two employees this year is my wife and Brandon and I, and 14 employees. Mm-hmm. So we're growing, we're making knives faster. And a lot of people might think we're actually like playing funny business with the numbers and like holding knives back. It's actually not true at all. What we're doing is we're building as many knives as we can in a set amount of time and we're dropping those. And then we're working on the next set of knives. Um, we did drop speed goats in December on December 9th. And we thought this is going to be like, and we marketed it this way. We told people for months, in, in December, we're going to have speed goats in stock full time. Mm-hmm. Right. And we launched those December 9th. And I was certain that we would have those knives till like into summer, probably. And, and we, and we also have a plan to backfill where we have Blackfoot's coming in stock full time in March. Um, we launched 4,000 blades and they sold out in 28 days. Uh, there's just Damn. no way for me to understand or know that that's going to happen. Um, and so I actually had a guy email like super pissed off and saying like, you guys are a joke, you're liars. You just did marketing. You said you were going to be in stock. And it's like, dude, it it would be super arrogant for me to even sit here today and think that, what am I going to do? Go cut 20,000 blades and, and think that they're going to sell out. Like, uh, it's just, uh, it's been super humbling and it's also been really cool and exciting. And quite frankly, we're just learning every day. And every drop, I'm as nervous as I was for the first one because, quite frankly, it feels like, God, at any moment, is this just going to end? Right. Like, is this right. a dream? Like, uh, so that's where we are today. We still, uh, uh, you know, we had one guy buy in for a real small percentage of the company. More to, uh, we wanted to add his experience to the board because he's a very uh, smart businessman, and I need help on the business side. And, uh, but we don't have big investors. It's still just Brandon and I really making the decisions. I have a new director of operations I hired from Amazon to actually help us on the production side of leaning our process out so we can make knives faster. Uh, But one thing I've told people all along, I will never sacrifice our quality uh, for the sake of just trying to get more knives out to make more money or or speed it up. We'll deal with some angry emails. Um, But really, quite frankly, for every email we've ever gotten that's angry, We'll get a hundred or a thousand that'll say, I love watching what's happening and your company's so cool and it's American made. Thank you for making things in America. You know, all those employees now, year two in our company, we have a 401k matching program. We have paid vacation. Uh, We have a a clause in our handbook that says do epic shit and we'll support you. Um, We, I want this to be a place that people want to work at and that it's a career, not just a job, you know? Well, and the cool thing, and this goes along with the guy that you're doing the marketing with is people want to be attached to something that they believe in. You're wearing an origin hoodie right now, right? Every part of that hoodie was made here in the United States of America, which doesn't make a big difference to everybody on the planet, but there is a strong segment of the population that they will spend however much extra they're going to have to spend on that hoodie because they know it was made here in the United States with American hands. And so that's why they can build out, you know, hunting gear and the geese and then do all the stuff on the Jocko fuel side. 
But the other thing about it that's interesting for the marketing side is we can watch you on Instagram as everything goes. So, you know, nobody knows this except you and I. We were supposed to do this about a week or two ago, but y'all had a problem with like, what was it, the, the dust collection system in, yeah. your, in your, new, your new facility? Well, guess what? The very next day, that's up on Instagram. Like, oh, here we are, like trying not to fall off the roof, putting this dust collection thing in. And what you do is, is you're giving people a peek behind the curtain, but you're also not showing them this super sanitized version where everything always works out great. You're always sold out and no one ever makes a mistake and no one ever accidentally cuts themselves. So it's the authenticity of it that I think speaks to what y'all are trying to build. And we as consumers, we can look at that and be a fan of what you're doing and then support the drops when they come. So one quick question to kind of on the, the expansion, because obviously you've ha- you got an expanded facility, you're expanding out your workforce. Do y'all have like a plan in place? Like, hey, by Q1 of 2024, we will have speed goats in stock. We know it because we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Is the guy from Amazon that you mentioned, are, are, are y'all kind of working towards that? Or are y'all just going to keep doing drops and, and leaving it the way it's been going? No, we're actually working towards it. And quite honestly, I mean, it's super cool that all those speed goats sold out that we launched in December, but we actually need knives in stock to be able to, to measure metrics. Right. So if we run a marketing campaign, if we do an ad, if we do a podcast, right, like or, or, or whatever we do, the way we're running now, we have no way to convert. Right. right? So you just said you come to my website, there's nothing there to sell. Well, we might have just lost a sale. And it's it's a real problem if, you know, if Kyle, if you want to go and buy a knife for your dad for Father's Day and you're like, oh, Father's Day is five days away. I need something. I'm going to get a knife and you go there. and We don't have something you're right. still going to go spend that money somewhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, we absolutely, uh, you know, that's where I think people think we would do this on purpose. Or we're playing games like we need knives in stock. Um, we still want to do like the limited drop thing on things to test products out, to test colors out, to test new models out, uh, before, like if I drop a new model and I'm like, ah, let's cut 50,000 of them. Right. And we drop them and people hate them. Yeah. Or maybe we, we we get halfway through the process and we're like, uh, these holes are drilled at the wrong side and this blade's hard and we can't fix it, right? Like, yep. no, we're going to start small. We can't afford as a brand to make a huge mistake. Um, so we have to start small, prove our processes, um, and then grow it, right? Well, the existing knives we have, we've proven it. We've gotten our, 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 our time to where we now know how much time is to make these knives. Uh, I think it's March... Uh, second or third, something like that, we plan on dropping Blackfoots in stock full time. Uh, we thought we were going to have speed goats until then and then have more. So our plan is to drop uh, Stonewalls in stock full time in September. Uh, so to your point, we actually have our drop calendar mostly laid out through the rest of this year. And and we actually had meetings all day yesterday uh, with a man that actually we just asked and he accepted he's going to join our board of directors uh, but he's an executive at Gore-Tex and he works okay. for Sika Gear. And his, pro- his uh, job there is product development and like scheduling and, and forward thinking. And the reason we're trying to add people like that to like our board of directors is to help us. Because like, man, I'm telling you, I'm just a regular dude. I've never <laughs> had to think about what products I'm going to be dropping in 2025. Sure. Right? Uh, right, yeah. So I feel like my job as the owner and CEO is to go find people that, people that are smarter than me, which isn't very hard. Uh, but if I can add really good people around us, I think you're going to see our brand grow up a lot in the next year or two. 
uh, just by adding experience, adding those puzzle pieces in. Cause I could try and figure it out. I've definitely figured a lot out on my own in the last two years. Uh, but that's also why we've maybe been slow at certain things. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's a very exciting process. It's super cool. Um, there's a ton of planning that goes on behind the scenes. It might appear as though we're just kind of like, oh, we're just going to make these and sell them. Uh, uh, there's definitely a lot of planning involved. Absolutely. And I think the thing that's also, it reminds me of an interview I did with uh, the guys from KC Cattle Company. For those people, like they blew up overnight because there was some big magazine that did an article about their Wagyu hot dogs. And it's just like, well, they didn't have those in stock for the amount that they sold. So they just, right from the beginning, they sent out an email and said, hey, we, we want to fulfill this order. We don't have it on hand. If you can wait, I forget how long it was, six, seven weeks or something like that, we'll get them to you. And he said, overwhelmingly, the people are like, oh yeah, we'll totally wait. We just want to do what we can to support you. Again, being often like being authentic with people from the very beginning and just showing your cards, even if, you know, you have your, you know, your pockets out or something like that. It's like, look, we're going to make this happen, but just come along on that journey with us. But one thing I want to do right now. So obviously we've mentioned the speed goat several times. And if you're watching this on YouTube or rumble, I'm holding it up in front of the screen right now. This thing is, it showed up all over the place during whitetail season last year. Everybody's like using this to take care of business. I sent you a picture of the first duck that I'd ever shot before. Yeah. I took care of the breast with, with this knife here. So I want you to walk us through this knife. Okay. So guys, you can see it. It's got the paracord handle. It's got the sheath. Even the sheath has, you know, this is the old sheath. You know, you have a new sheath now, yep. but it's not the leather sheath. There's a lot of reasons for that. So just take us through this knife bit by bit. Why'd you name it the speed goat? What was the idea behind this? Why paracord on the handle? Cause that's not something that I was really familiar with. Why the thin blade? Just take us through this whole thing. Yeah. So that speed goat knife, uh, I wanted to design an ultralight knife uh, for people who like to count ounces who are going into the backcountry hunting. Um, or hiking for that matter. Uh, and for a lot of guys, I mean, these guys will cut handles off of toothbrushes. Um, they'll cut weight in every way that they can. And, uh, you know, I was seeing a lot of people carrying like replaceable blade knives, stuff like that. But I still think you have to have a fixed blade knife. If you're going to be going days away from, from civilization and into the woods, you should have a way to really, uh, you know, survive out there, start fires, do things like that, break down animals. Um, so I want it to be light. It needed to be big enough to take care of big game and small game. It needed to have a point on it to be able to cape out an animal if you needed to cape it out and pack that out of the mountains. Um, and what I like about the paracord is the fact that it's light and it actually serves dozens of other functions. Uh, so if you get in a bind where you need some rope and you, maybe you didn't pack rope in your pack or something like that, you can actually unwrap that rope, that paracord off that knife, and that blade will actually go back into the sheath without the cord on it. Um, and so you can use that cord to tie up antlers on your pack if you've successfully harvested something, uh, tie up meat in a tree, guy out a tent, fix a boot lace, uh, whatever. Maybe your button breaks on your pants and you're not wearing a belt. Like, like things like that that are really dumb that could really be a pain in the ass when you're five or eight miles from your truck. Right. Um, and drag out an elk. I did that with my daughter. And again, people might, it's funny. We don't actually really create much content around here. We just video what we do. And right. my daughter and my son shot an elk. My son's elk ran down into this North face timber. Um, I cut that elk in half with that speed goat, gutted it out, cut it in half, including through the spine, through the ribs, everything. I cut that elk in half with no saw. Um, and then I took all the rope off that knife, tied it around its leg. And my kids and I 
uh, you know, I used that rope and the kids were hanging on to the elk and we drug those two halves out of the woods with that piece of rope. It's 550 pound test strength. So you physically as a man are not going to break it. You can't pull hard enough to break that rope. So uh, you can even use that stuff if you had to, which that's a short piece of rope, but you know, for repelling or, you know, more than likely you're not going to use it for something like that. But uh, there are a lot of survival situations, tying up things for a shelter, um, things like that. So I love the the paracord for that reason. That blade, when you unwrap that, that paracord is actually skeletonized to take more weight out of the handle. Um, and then to me, the thing that's often overlooked, and I think we're changing the game, is the sheath that you talked about. Uh, nothing drives me more crazy than, than seeing a, a, you know, a blade in the store that you're going to buy and they hand you uh, the sheath after you purchase the knife and the sheath is a complete piece of shit. Yeah. You have to be able to carry that knife accessible, not buried in your pack in the bottom, but on your belt or on your pack strap. Um, or even if it is in your pack, it needs to be a secure sheath that holds that blade tight. Uh, that belt clip on that knife will actually turn 90 degrees. So you can carry that knife horizontal or vertical. You have it set up for a vertical carry right now. Right. Um, you can take that clip off and just tuck that, that, that knife and that sheath into like a, like a bino harness pouch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take that, you can take rope and run through those holes and, and tie that sheath onto something if you'd want with the holes that are in it. So, um, that sheath also has an adjustable retention screw. Um, the other, the last thing I'll answer that you asked me is why is it called the speed goat? Uh, people that maybe don't live here don't know, but that's a slang term for a, uh, an antelope. So an antelope in Eastern Montana are like one of the fastest species on the planet. I mean, they run like crazy and they have an incredibly keen sense of vision. Uh, they can see like, like no other animal. Uh, so I, I feel like that speed goat knife has a really keen, sharp edge. Um, and it's light and it's fast. And I like to name stuff after Montana. So, uh, I chose speed goat as the name. Well, it's, it's a nice ode to even your upbringing. Cause obviously that's something that that's terminology you've used your entire life. That isn't weird to you, but it's weird to someone like me who's never heard it before. But you know, I'm one of those guys now. And I talked to, to Bert Soren about this as well. Like I'm getting into all this outdoor stuff, hunting stuff as an adult. Okay. So I didn't grow up in a family that did that. So I lived in Oklahoma, but I was playing sports all the time. So we, we weren't out camping. We weren't out hunting any of those types of things. I didn't do any of that until I got into my twenties. And now in my thirties, I'm really starting to try to hone like I don't know what to put on my pack. I don't know what's ridiculous to take with me. I don't know what's awesome to take with me. Like I just got, you know, good origin hunting gear. I'm experimenting with different knives and doing different things in certain ways. And whenever I was in Colorado last year on a black bear hunt, that was one thing about this particular sheath is like, okay, here's the pack that I have. What would be the most convenient way to have this to where I could get to it immediately? Because I was the guy that would either wear it on my belt, which again, that's, you know, a a blade that, you know, would come out. It's not a fixed blade or I would have it in my pack. And it's the exact same situation. I'm digging in the bottom of my pack, looking for my, you know, knife and sheet. That's the same color as everything else. It just wasn't the most convenient thing. So the interesting thing about the speed goat as well, Josh, as it seems like you're using the speed goat as the foundation to build other stuff as well. You did a drop recently of a mini speed goat. And so this is more so what guys would maybe carry in the appendix position, you know, having a, a fixed blade on them, the stoned goat, which is a combination of a couple of different knives, but it seems like you're using like that, 
that paracord handle and kind of the lightweight frame and everything is kind of like a foundation to do other things. Is that something you're going to keep doing into the future or was that just kind of an accident with a stone goat in the mini speed goat? Yeah, you know, I'd like to say that I'm super smart and that was planned from the beginning of my company, but really quite frankly, it was more about listen to what our customers say and then just responding. So uh, the speed goat, there were people that were telling me like, um, honestly, that thing's even a little long for what I need. Like imagine how light that thing would be if it was an inch shorter, inch and a half shorter and just smaller. And I could actually put it in my pocket. And I was like, that's a pretty damn good idea. So yeah. I built it. Right. Um, and honestly, that mini speed goat has become super popular for even like women, um, you know, girls that go off jogging or hiking up trails, uh, sure. men who go up jogging, things like that to actually kind of have a way to have a self-defense weapon on you. But it's not something that's, you know, you're not running with a pistol or some big, uh, you know, uh, crocodile Dundee knife on your side. Um, it can tuck inside the waistband of a pair of leggings or in a sports bra um, or in your gym shorts or whatever. And you really won't even see it. Yeah. Um, it make, it would make me feel a lot better if I knew my college age daughter was out hiking a trail and she had that speed goat on her. It would right. just make me feel better. Um, plus it's handy. Right. And, and a lot of people carrying those at work, cutting open boxes and stuff. Uh, the stoned goat was a response to people saying, ah, the, the point on that speed goat's too pointy for me. I like a knife with more belly. And it's like, Hey, there is not one knife out there for everybody. Uh, that's a great idea. More of a skinning profile. And we kind of had that knife, but it was in a bigger blade with our stone wall. Mm -hmm. So our stone wall knife and our speed goat had a baby and we called it the stone to goat. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to get to a point where we do more strategic planning as a company, uh, one and two years out, but I'll be honest with you. I think any brand that's smart, is going to listen to their customer first and foremost. So even if we develop a strategy as a plan, and this is what we talked about yesterday, I'm just kind of laying out like, like you say, I'm kind of real. This is what we're like literally talking about. Um, right. My board is full right now of uh, year 24. We got culinary hunt. Uh, we have uh, uh, tactical, like all these things written up there. Um, and we're trying to plan. And I said yesterday, this is great. It's great to have a plan, uh, but we have to continue reading our DMs and our emails and our texts, watching our, our, our Instagram uh, comments. And, and when we start seeing a theme of like, hey, this guy's saying this is a problem or this would be a good idea, uh, we need to listen to that stuff. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that because, again, it's like I told you, like, okay, when I, if I had started doing all this hunting stuff, whenever most of my friends did, when they were, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, like your brain's like 20 years away from being fully developed. And so you can only know so much. And so you just kind of go with it. But as a 30 year old, I have a really good idea now of what I like to do, what's comfortable, what's uncomfortable. Hey, I really need this for this exact moment. And you're going to see that through experimentation when people go on different types of hunts and different types of areas, or they have different things on the work site. That's going to really be all, that's something that a lot of companies would pay you know, an organization to go out and gather all this data. People are just just dying to give you this data as to, hey, I would want to do this and could you maybe look at that? But Josh, I know you got some other stuff going on, so I want to kind of start to wind this to a close. One thing is you're listening to a lot of guys now, you know, we're all, almost an hour into a conversation mainly centered around blades and knives, but there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what types of blades are good, what is good to have on you, what's good to have in or on your pack. Also, you know, the best way to sharpen a knife, like 
you know, some people, they only stick with the stone or some people just do the belt. Some people do any number of things. I, I know a guy that's got like a $2,000 like professional sharpening kit and like everyone's got their own things about knives. I want some idiosyncrasies from you. Someone who's spent his life thinking about blades. What are some of those misconceptions? What are things that, you know, if they're not buying a Montana knife company knife, what are things that they should consider when buying a knife? What's the best way to sharpen it? Just anything you want to do to give us a little bit more wisdom on that end. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And actually it kind of goes back to you, like getting into honey and not sure what to take or what to pack and things like that and kind of learning. Uh, I really want to start developing our company more and more. And we have plans of doing this into being kind of a, uh, um, um, what would you call it? A resource, uh, a resource. And, and if I don't know the answer, I, I have a cool network around me of people that I will tell you, like, I'm not an expert in that, but you should go listen to this guy's podcast or, or go check out this guy's Instagram, uh, because he's really good at that. And I'm going to be always very honest in that way. Um, like with the lightweight backpacking stuff and packing stuff like Aaron Snyder with Kafaru, um, and his podcast, like, go down through that gear stuff and he does a pack dump. It's, it's brilliant stuff, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, I, uh, on, on the knife side, uh, the one thing that I've always kind of seen and the reason I wanted to launch MKC is I always saw knives that were too heavy, too thick, a lot of times too big. You don't need a huge blade. That little speed goat has broke down more damn elk than maybe any other knife right now in the country this last year. Mm -hmm. Um, if the knife is made correctly, it can be light. It can have nice thin edge geometry, which then helps you it make it easier for you to resharpen it because you're not removing a lot of steel on the sharpening side. That's a whole nother podcast and, and, yeah. and video that we could go into. But what I will say is uh, I'm trying to change people's minds and, and make them understand that maybe the whole reason that they think they've sucked at sharpening knives their whole life is actually because they had the wrong knife in their hand. It wasn't necessarily a, a, a you problem. Uh, a, a blade that's way too thick and heavy is a very difficult thing to sharpen, especially if you don't have the right equipment for it. Um, our knives are easy to resharpen. We have a YouTube video on that, but I also encourage people with our generations program, send it back to us. We'll sharpen that thing for free. If you get elk blood all over that paracord and fat and that knife's dull and it's like you'd have just had a, you've, you've put it in a hell of a run for a season. You send it to us, we'll rewrap the paracord for you, brand new cord. Uh, we'll resharpen it, we'll clean it up, and we'll get it back to you. Because ultimately, I want you to take it next season and crush it again. Um, I don't want it to become a problem where like, now Kyle doesn't really know how to sharpen his knife, so he pitched it in the corner and went and got another knife. Like, I yeah. want you to put, I want you to put dozens of animals under the belt of that knife to where it's it's an inch shorter someday. You've sharpened it down to. And you're like, I'm retiring this thing yeah. and I'm getting a new one, right? That's what I want. Uh, this throwaway society we live in where uh, everything, when you walk into Target and look around, everything's made to throw away. And that bothers me. And especially the fact that we were then making knives to throw away with our replaceable blade knives. Um, that really bothered me because as men, we've generally only ever passed down knives and guns to the next generation. Sure. Uh, we might pass down jewelry and some artwork, um, but you can't name a lot more that we passed down, maybe a classic car. Um, so we just took one of the things that I've had. I've had thousands of people bring knives in my shop to sharpen, and it was never about the knife, but it was always about who carried it. This was my grandfather's. This was my uncle's. This was my aunt's chef's knife or my grandma. Um, 
And though you might not think anybody cares about that speed goat today of like the fact that you're using it on your hunts in 50 years, if that knife's still around and you've passed it down, somebody's going to go, my grandpa used this on his first duck. And then he used it on an elk. And then he went sheep hunting in Alaska and used it up there. Like Mm. those are the memories that like someday, um, you're like, you're going to be gone. And all that's going to be left is a few things that you touched with your own hands. And that's, what's going to be special to the next generation. I think that is such, such an amazing word, Josh, because you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm thinking of one of our biggest supporters and earliest supporters of our show and what we do here at Undaunted Life. Uh, his, his father has passed away and I was in his office and this is a guy that hunts a lot. He's got animals up all over the place. He's got gorgeous knives. I've actually given him a custom knife before as a gift. And he has a, an old case knife. Uh, that do, that kind of sticks out from all the other ones that are sitting there on display. And I'm like, hey, what's up with that one? He's like, that was my dad's hunting knife. And like his his dad's gone now, but he's got his hunting knife, right? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like he wouldn't trade, he wouldn't take a million dollars for that knife. And you're exactly right. That is one of the few things that we can pass down. Like that was what I was thinking of. I, I did think, you know, maybe if you got an old Chevelle, you would pass that down to your grandson or something like that. But you're absolutely right. I, I just love the work that you guys are doing. And just another shout out, shout out to y'all's YouTube channel. There are different things on there. Like if you're a do it yourselfer and you want to sharpen it, guys, they show you on there how to resharpen their knives. If you want to learn, you know, if you've used this paracord and you want to learn how to tie it back up again on your own, you guys have a video on that as well. So, you know, again, this is just kind of a, an ode to the stuff you're doing you know, on the marketing side and just making yourselves a resource for everybody. But Josh, there's more we can talk about, but uh, we'll have to save that for another time. That's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I, I, I actually I feel a little bad. Like we could go on for another hour. I know we could, um, but I, I feel bad with having a meeting coming up. But uh, what I'd like to do is just do it again sometime and we'll cover yeah. some other stuff. So uh, uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I encourage people uh, to get outside with their children Um, you know, I was talking to a guy yesterday, some of the only things that, that people ever remember down the road about their, their parents or about their childhood. You know, I know with my boy, um, it's not going to be all the little sports games they played in school. It's not going to be anything about what they did with their friends, but it's generally going to be something that they did probably outdoors with their uncle or their mom or their dad, uh, hiking, hunting, things Mm -hmm. like that. All this other stuff we're doing, um, the podcasts, the knives we're making, a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, the business moves we're trying to make, like a lot of that won't matter down the road. Uh, but what will matter to somebody is, you know, is the time spent outside doing something with, with a loved one. So, um, I'd love to see more people get outdoors and, uh, and, and follow along with what we're doing. We're kind of an open book, like you said, and, uh, frankly, we're just kind of regular dudes trying to figure it out, bring American manufacturing back and, uh, and do epic shit. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, this is just the Scratch the Surface podcast. We will certainly have you back on to talk about more stuff. But Josh Smith, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Josh Smith. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today, I've got a link to the Montana Knife Company website. So guys, from there, you can get to all the information about their products. You can get to their YouTube channel. You can get to everything. So go there and check it out.
Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.